This is part three of three of a series called DNA. DNA is an acronym that stands for Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. But when Reed and I were talking about this series, we had another name that we kind of floated, and it was Spiritual Friendship. Now, some of, I shared last week, some of my greatest gifts in life have been spiritual friends. I get to be married to one of my closest spiritual friends. And the key to a spiritual friendship is part one, discipleship. You see, we have a lot of friendships, but discipleship unites a relationship around Jesus. And it says that I'm not only here for you and you're not only here for me, we're here for Jesus. We're here for the work of God and the Spirit to do something in our lives. We are working together, and I need you to help me follow Jesus, and you need me to help you see the Spirit. And together, we're on this journey. Discipleship unites friends around the Spirit of God. That, that is the first recipe, part of the recipe for spiritual friendship. Last week, though, we said that there's also an element of nurture that has to be there. And men, don't get intimidated by the concept of nurture. Remember, we saw that Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, was the most nurturing person that the world has ever seen. Jesus was constantly nurturing people. Remember, we gave three word pictures. The first one was like a gardener who, who tends like a plant nursery. And by the way, Marshawn is here today. If you need any gardening tips, he's already had multiple conversations about what seeds he has in the ground. He's here. He's ready. A gardener nurtures plants. He feeds them. He delights in them. He cherishes them. A nursing mother nurses her, a child. A doctor nurtures and nourishes a patient back to health. All of these are what Jesus is doing in, in the Gospels. And he says, it's not, it's not the people who are righteous that he's come to call. It's the sinners. It's the sick. And so here we are, s- sinful and sick people in need of his healing, in need of his nurture. And so in DNA groups, we're hoping to share that with one another. And today is part three, accountability. Now, from the first time you heard DNA, when you got to the word accountability, you may have shuddered a little bit, kind of unintentionally, because when it comes to accountability, accountability can make us nervous. So I kind of want to explore, is accountability something that's important in our culture or not? Is accountability something we value or not? But first, let's start by defining accountability. Here's my definition today for accountability. <laughs> it's the ability to give an account, okay, right? Do you see how that's put together? You have the ability to give an account for something, but really it's the ability to give and to receive, to share an honest account of something. It's the ability to share, to give and to receive an honest account. That's what accountability means. And did you know this, that accountability is actually everywhere? So I've been preparing a sermon on accountability, so maybe my ears have just been open to the idea. But it seems like accountability is everywhere I look. Just think kind of culturally. There's a story of our local NBA team. Have you guys heard of John Morant? Okay. You see, John Morant was doing stupid things on Instagram. And the NBA, his employer held him accountable. He was suspended for eight games. Now, at the risk of doing too many sports metaphors, there's also been a lot of referee stories in the news where people are saying referees need to be held accountable. Otherwise, they'll just kind of go off and do their own thing, and they'll have these little power trips. We also see it in in politics. Our former president is actually 
he's under investigation from a grand jury for payments to a porn star over an alleged affair, right? And so people are calling for accountability. Locally in politics, it's also here. Maybe you know uh, the remarks of our county mayor about a county clerk and the county clerk's office, which is in this plaza, he says that he's going to hold her in derelict of duty if she doesn't kind of get, he's going to hold her accountable if she doesn't get the office in order. It's not just sports, not just politics, it's also business. Have you heard of the, the crash of the Silicon Valley Bank? And there are people calling to hold the leaders of this bank accountable. You see, accountability is all over. These are just stories from the last week in our city. And accountability is at the heart of all of them. Accountability is everywhere. It's in parenting, too. I was thinking of just how much of our spring break was about a reset for our kids. You know, they've been going, going, going. They're kind of spent at school. And then we get a, we get a break. But a big part of our break with our family was kind of recentering on relationship and accountability. A parent's role is to hold their kids accountable. This is, is everywhere. And, and yet, there's a, there's a sense where most of us live kind of at least most of our personal lives with no accountability. We get nervous when there's no accountability, except when it comes to us. Let me, let me say it like this. We fear it's absence and presence. Let me, let me illustrate the absence. So I, I talked about sports, but who's holding the owners of the teams accountable? There have been many stories of abusive, kind of narcissistic leaders who seem to just operate with impunity because there's no one to actually hold them accountable. Same thing is true in politics. Same thing is true in business. I remember years ago after the financial crisis and the housing market, there were many lower-level employees who were terminated and laid off, while many high-level executives got massive payouts and raises. And the, the public was saying, who's going to hold these people accountable? It frustrates us to no end when the powerful aren't held accountable. Do you feel that ever? Uh, there's, there's stories right now where they're trying to figure out how to hold the officers involved in the death and the murder of Tyree Nichols. There's the people at the scene. How do we hold them accountable? Because we want, when there's no accountability, there can be no justice. We want it, and yet, we want it out there, <laughs> but we don't really want it in here. You see, its, it's absence makes us nervous, because then we know if, without accountability, there can be secrecy, there can be power plays, manipulation, lies, deceit. So it's a good thing none of those things could ever happen in here, Right? Because we know that, so what I'm, basically what I'm suggesting is that the reason we want accountability out there may actually be one of our key reasons why we need accountability in here. You see, if others are prone to deception, manipulation, abuses of power, and secrecy, is it possible that I am too? That you are too? So one of the reasons we need accountability is because of the very reasons that we're afraid of it and the reasons we see it in others. But I think 
for me, one of the main reasons I think we want accountability is because of spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship. Let me, let me say it like this. If I'm asking why accountability, because most of us don't experience true community. We experience connectivity. Do you hear those two words? What's the difference in connectivity and community? There's a lot of kinds of connectivity. Just think of the people you're digitally connected to, like your followers on Instagram or your friends on Facebook. You can be digitally connected to somebody and not experience real community, right? But you can also be socially connected to somebody and not experience true community. You see, we've, we've talked about this in terms of belonging spaces at Oikos Church. This is a big room with a lot of people, and you are connected in some way to one another. But that doesn't mean that you're living in true kind of vulnerability with one another. And the thing we want, yes, we want to be a part of something connective. We want that connective tissue. But I think spiritual friendship at its heart is vulnerability. There has to be a, a different kind of space there. And so accountability actually becomes really important for this. David Brooks, he wrote a book on community, and he says community is woven through love-drenched accountability. Community is woven through love-drenched accountability. But unfortunately, we don't always believe this. I was, I was, have you guys heard of the book Crucial Conversations? It's kind of a best-selling corporate book, and lots of times your workplace may ask you to read it. Um, the author on Crucial Conversations says the mistake most of us make in our crucial conversations is we believe that we have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. You see, we don't, we're afraid of, we're afraid of accountability. We're, we think we have to choose between friendship, but actually the truest friendship opens up and shares those things in common. I'm, I'm always thinking when it comes to friendship on C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he says the typical friendship, like opening expression is this, what, you too? And so friendship is this opening up and seeing something in common. And it, the opening that we actually desire is on a, a deep level. We want somebody to say, you too? Yes, I, I feel that. I know that. Because community is actually to share in common with. That's just what the word means. And when we have parts of our lives that we're not sharing and having in common with, it means that the friendship can't touch the deepest and sometimes the most important parts of us. There's an author named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he wrote a really wonderful book called Life Together. Uh, Life Together is one of those books that I would absolutely recommend that you read. It's about 100 pages long. It may take you a couple hours. But he says this, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, they may still be left to their loneliness. You see what he's saying. He's saying these people are part of ministry, they're part of prayer groups, and they're part of worship. And yet, because they're not sharing sin, they are utterly alone. He goes on. He says the final breakthrough to fellowship, to true fellowship, does not occur, though, because they have fellowship with one another as believers, as devout people. They do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. He says we, we all pretend whenever we're here we have fellowship as devout people. Oh, look how good we're all doing. He says, but that's not actually who we are. So everybody has to conceal. In these kinds of settings, you have to conceal sin from himself 
and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners, so we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is, we are sinners. He says there's a part of ourselves that we can't bring into spiritual friendship. So long as we're leaving sin outside, if we come into a, a pious or a devout community, he says we're just pretending. We're pretending to be something that we're not. Accountability, though, invites this introspection and the sharing into it. He goes, sin demands to have a man by himself. Look at all the loneliness language. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. You see, what Bonhoeffer's reflecting on, he says, you actually can't experience true community. You can't experience spiritual friendship without this, this piece of accountability. You're not going to bring your full self, you're the actual you that's you. You as a sinner. He says, and because you don't bring you as a sinner, you're not only walling off true community, he says you're walling off true transformation. Have you ever seen somebody who, because they didn't open their lives up to another, they just believed something that was half true? And you're like, yeah, I looked in the mirror today. I do that all the time. We actually need the insights of other people, the lights from other people to shine on our hearts. Because, man, we can believe some stuff as if it's really real, if it's truly true, when it's at best, only half-truth. It's not just half-truths. We also see these behaviors that we know aren't entirely good. We know they're a part of our lives, and other people, we can hold them secret from them. The truths and lies, it's not just spiritual friendship. It's deep transformation that is at the heart of why I think we actually desire real accountability in our relationships. Because we want to change. We want to change, but we're worried about this. I was reading a book uh, this month. I think I borrowed it from Reed and Natalie. Thank you, guys. It's called The Other Half of Church. And it's, <laughs> you see the subtitle, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. And what the point of this book is, he's saying most of our church is very left brain. Left brain is like, um, it's very message-oriented. It's very analytical. And he's saying, we need to recover the other half of church, the, the kind of automatic, where you look somebody in the eyes and you experience something immediately. He says, that's actually how we change. So he gives four ingredients to how people actually do change spiritually. Four ingredients. One of those ingredients he calls healthy correction. The chapter is called healthy correction. Stop being so nice. I was like, Really? This is, this is how people change? By stopping niceties? He says it like this. He says, there's a lovely little system in our brain just above our right ear, the other half, that determines whether we're going to make a change. The brain corrects problems only if they cause discomfort. That is some kind of pain. For the brain, the right saying would be, no pain, no change. But here there's a risk when it comes to accountability. Because when it comes to expressing our vulnerabilities and our sin, we have experienced pain. It's the pain of 
toxic shame. It's the pain of condemnation. When I say toxic shame, what I mean is this message in our heads that when we do something wrong and it's exposed, we hear that you are bad. You are evil. Or you are skinny. You are fat. You are ugly. You are worthless. You don't belong. Those messages, those are all left-brain messages. They're content or they're, they're messages that we hear. And This toxic message is a pain point, but it always leads to destruction. This is a satanic twist on something that God wants to intend for our good. So instead of condemnation, we actually desire correction. But because we so fear condemnation, we we just hide it. We wall it off. We won't share it. Because it would be better to suffer alone than to be exposed and to be outed as a bad person who doesn't belong to others. That's, that's the fear that we feel. But it's actually not what we need. This is, he says, no pain, no change. He says, if you have a relational pain, you need a relational solution. And the relational solution is for your people to come alongside you and to say, that's not who we are, but I'm going to help you get there. So he says it like this, you have forgotten who you are. This is what we need to say to each other. He says, if you really want to transform, parents, this is true of your three-year-old or your 13-year-old, you have forgotten who you are. Let me remind you who we are. We are a people who blank. I would love to help you with this. You see, this is correction, but not condemnation. This invites in, maintains relationship. This is true accountability. He says, most of us have never heard anything like this. So why accountability? Because we actually need correction. Just imagine, for instance, that you you have a child who is never corrected from their parents. What would we call that child? Spoiled. You would, at some point, you would call them probably um, worse names than that, right? When they become adults. But in the same way that we, we are like little children in the same way who need correction. We actually need, we know we need it. But we fear condemnation. But what would it look like to have an environment that was filled with nurture, that had a shared identity, where we could experience healthy correction? You see, if you could have those ingredients, you would get spiritual friendship. If you could have those ingredients, that's where deep transformation becomes possible. Now, today what we're going to do is dive into Matthew 18. It's going to be on page 844 in the Coffee House Bible, Matthew 18. This is, this is Jesus' kind of bottom line point. If you're asking why accountability, yes, the same reasons we want accountability in others is the reasons we need it. Yes, the reasons we need accountability is for true spiritual friendship. We want our whole selves to be there. Yes, we want accountability because accountability is the pathway to deep transformation. But Jesus, this is the way he says it, accountability alters eternity. And he's going to look at it in a variety of different ways. He says the people bringing sin into a community, he says it changes eternity. He says the people who hide their sin in a community, it changes eternity. 
He says, but on the flip side, the people who go after sinners, it changes their eternity. And the people who forgive sinners, it changes their eternity too. So today, we're going to be in part three in our series, Accountability, Matthew 18, 1 through 35. Matthew 18 is one of those most often neglected teachings of Jesus. Did you know that in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five teaching sections? Matthew seems to be very structured, and he loves um, five. It seems to be a mirror image of the Torah. The books of the law of the Old Testament correspond to the five teachings of Jesus in his Gospel. Now, one of those teachings is really famous. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. We know Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I love it. But then his fourth teaching is what we're going to dive into today. And this is actually his last teaching before he suffers, before his passion. And as a church, it just so happens that this is our last teaching before we walk through Holy Week together and remember his suffering. This teaching is all about life together. Chapter 18 is all about what it looks like to live in community. He's going to say, my disciples, this is what I want you to look like. This is how I want you to treat one another. This is how I want you to practice accountability. Matthew 18 is a really important text. We're going to look at every verse of this chapter, which means we're going to have to move pretty quickly through some of these verses. So let's dive right in. This is Matthew 18, verse 1. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest? If you're ever worried about condemnation and finding condemnation from Jesus, it can give you some peace to know that the disciples were constantly putting their foot in their mouth with Jesus. (laughs) They are not perfect examples. And so if you ever have questions for Jesus, just know that they, they probably ask some silly questions too. And so here's one of theirs. Who is the greatest? And they are, they are way off base. So Jesus gives them a slight healthy correction. He called a little child. Did y'all hear the kind of chorus of little children today as we worship? I, I love that. Um, you know, there's, there's singing and coughing and crying and babbling. I got to hear Judah talking to his mama today, I think. And he wanted to draw Mickey, okay. But you know, six months ago, Judah couldn't hardly talk. And now he's using words. It's awesome. So he, Jesus is drawing a little child to him, and he placed the child among the disciples. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change, you want to know who's the greatest? He said, you've got to change that and become like little children, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, this lowly is the language where it says in Isaiah that God, his preparer, is going to come and is going to flatten down the mountains and raise up the valleys. He says, you have to lower yourself like a child. Now, we know kids. This isn't like a character quality that he's pointing at. It's not, oh, look how holy and righteous these kids are. If you think that about kids, you're not yet a parent. (laughs) The point is about status. And the NIV does really well here, the lowly position. He says, they're insignificant in culture. He says, that's how I want you to be. Lower yourself. And then when you lower yourself, you're the greatest in the kingdom. And then whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Me. Jesus is saying, how you treat children is how you treat me. We know he says this later, right? So you have the people locked up in prison. He says, when did we serve you? When did we help you? When did we feed you? He says, as much as you did it to one of the 
the least of these, these little ones, you did it to me. Jesus is identifying with children. He's saying, I have solidarity with children. It's so fascinating to me because the rest of this chapter is all about accountability. Verses 1 through 5 really aren't. They're about humility. But for Jesus, humility is an essential part of the recipe, so to speak, to use that metaphor, of healthy accountability. You see, we are afraid of condemnation. That's why we don't want accountability. But Jesus says, before he ever touches on the topic of sin, you are the greatest. You are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You may feel small. He says, that's actually how I know you're great. So it's people who feel small, who lower themselves, that he affirms their dignity and value before he ever gets started. Something odd, though, happens in verse 6. You see, he, he focuses first on accounting for sin, bringing sin into the community. Look at what he does in verse 6. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, remember, he just pulled a child in, and he says, you need to become like a child. But now, look, he changes the definition of little one. He's no longer talking about actual children. Look how he defines it. Those who believe in me. So he says, yes, I want you to become like children because you, you're functionally my children. You're children of God. And so he says, if you cause one of these to stumble, really, if you're responsible for the downfall of others, he says, watch out. Who he's talking about here are people who bring sin into a community. People who bring sin and temptation to the disciples of Jesus. He says, if you bring sin into a community, watch out. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's pretty intense. He's saying that a quick death by drowning is actually going to be far better for you if you bring sin into a community of his people. It would be far better if you're causing other, if you're leading people astray, a quick death would be merciful. That would be better than what is coming for you. Do you see how accountability alters eternity? Oh boy. He says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. We live in a fallen world. They must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. He says, people who harm the saints of God are going to be held accountable. Their eternity is at stake. But it's not just outside bringing into the community. He also says people inside who hide sin in the community. It alters their eternity too. Look at what he says, verse 8. He says, if your hand or your foot, and then look at verse 9, if your eyes. And these messages are just going to track with one another. You see, this isn't somebody bringing it in. This is part of you that's already there. And he says, it's like a sickness that's hidden in the marrow. He says, if it's hidden there and it causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away or gouge it out and throw it away because it's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled or it's better for you to enter life with one eye than it is to have two feet and hands and be thrown into eternal fire or to have one eye or to have one eye and be thrown into the fire of hell. Do you see that accountability alters eternity? If you bring sin into a community, he says there are real stakes for that. And if you hide your sin in community, 
He says there are real stakes for that. He calls it eternal fire. Death by drowning would be far better than eternal fire. Jesus isn't sugarcoating. Do you notice that Jesus, he's not saying, ah, you do you. He's not saying, just tolerate one another. None of us are perfect. Instead, Jesus is saying, we have to have healthy correction because accountability alters eternity. This is about sin, but he says it's also, it's also about sinners. You have to account for sin outside and you have to account for sin inside, but he says, but you also have to account for sinners, those who wander into sin. Look at this. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who are the little ones? It's not children anymore, remember. It's disciples, those who believe in me, those who trust in me. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is a really cool teaching. But today's teaching isn't on like guardian angels or anything like that. So we just, we can't fully dive into what this might mean. But it seems that in this context, the point is that when you encounter somebody, they are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But he says, you also need to know that they have representatives in heaven. They matter to God. And because they matter to God, look at this. He says, so what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? He says, if they matter enough in heaven, they should matter enough on earth. If a sinner who wanders, he says, their angels are pleading to God. He says, what will the shepherds and the people on earth do? They will leave the 99 and they will go to look for the one that wandered off. And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. He says, if it's true of God in heaven and the angels in heaven, then it should be true of us in the community of people. You see, sin has eternal consequence. Accountability matters. It alters eternity. So, he says, go after the sinner. Look at straight out of this, he says, so if your brother or sister sins, now some translations will say here, sins against you. Those are, don't, that line doesn't appear to be in the best manuscripts. That doesn't seem to be original to what Jesus said. If your brother or sister sins, does anybody here have a brother or sister in Christ who's ever sinned? Okay, what do we do? Do we go to them? No. Do we talk about them? Yes. <laughs> he says, he says, they're like a sheep who wanders. And remember the stakes of sin. Sin has eternal consequences. So he says, you have to go and find them. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Confront them just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. Do you see these words here, you? This is a text that's very often used for church discipline conversations. Like, what do you do when somebody has public sin? This is the go-to text. But that's a little odd. It's certainly helpful for matters of church discipline. But it's odd because these are singular pronouns, not plural. These are singular. These are for individuals. He's saying to you individually, you need to go confront a brother or a sister to go point out their sin you, you, me, not us, not you all. It's, it's singular. This is really odd. One 
commentator, I think this is Richard France, um, he says this passage is often seen as a guide to church leaders on disciplinary action. But these are addressed to you singular, the individual disciple, and their concern is not with the punishment of an offense, but with the attempt to rescue a brother whose sin has put him in danger. The passage is thus a practical guide to how a disciple can imitate the father's concern for the wandering sheep. Do you see how verses 13 and 14 go straight into 15? We, we need to go after the sheep, he says. But notice, this isn't go after the sheep on your preferences and matters of opinion. Right? It's like, you know, I love it like this. You know, I, I'm not sure that's totally the wisest thing or the best thing. These are matters of eternal significance and sin. There is a difference between sin and wisdom. So he's saying, you have to go. But he says, but if they will not listen, take one or two brothers along or sisters, others, and every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He quotes Deuteronomy 19, which is about having two or three witnesses. It's a judicial setting there. Here it's not. This is a personal setting. This isn't a law court. This is a friendship. He's saying, if they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church, the, the gathering. Matthew and Jesus are talking before the church is even established. He's, he's saying, tell it to the gathering of people. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What he's saying is, you need to remove fellowship from them. Why would we do that, Jesus? I thought we were supposed to be kind to sinners and merciful. He's saying, yes, he's about to get into that, how to treat, how to treat people in sin. But he says, there are eternal consequences for sin that goes unaddressed. He says, remember, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea than to have the outcome of where sin leads. He says, it's eternal fire. It's the fire of hell. Treat them as you would a pagan, because all in an effort to rescue them back. Okay, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Sometimes we feel like we don't have the authority to call out sin in the lives of others. After all, we're not perfect. He says, that's true. But you have the authority as a representative of Jesus. Look how he puts it here. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Can I just tell two quick stories that have nothing to do with accountability that just illustrate this from this week? Mostly I just want to share some cool answers to prayer. Um, a young woman from Oikos came over to the house. We, we talked for a while. And as she's leaving, we kind of huddle and pray, and I ask for, um, ask for a thing that we talked about, a, kind of a door that had closed and it needed to open. And within three hours, I got a text that the Lord had answered that prayer and had provided that thing, where, where two people agree on something, and we bring it to the Father. He's saying, I, I want to. And when he doesn't say yes, it, it's mostly because he's like, if you knew what I knew, I'm going to answer your prayer based on if you, if you knew what I, would, what I know if you, if you asked. I, I butchered that line. Excuse me. Are you, I hope you can like translate whatever language that was. <laughs> another story. Um, we had a, another couple come over maybe the next night. And 
you know, they wanted something to happen in their life, and we were able to pray for that thing. Can, I'm just going to share what that one was. Is that okay? All right. Uh, Zach and Janet, we were talking, and you know, they really wanted to sell their house. And so I was, I was praying that the Lord would bring in an offer and sell their house soon. And in my head, I, I said, Lord, would you do it tonight? But then I paused, and out loud, I said, would you just make sure this happens by the end of the week? Would you give them a contract? And we finished praying, and then Zach picked up his phone. And during our prayer, they received a contract on their house, received an offer on our house. And we were like, Lord, we're two or three are agreeing, and they are asking their father. It's amazing how often the father wants to answer that. Now, does he answer yes every time? I'm not even going to butcher the line again. But if we knew what he knew, what would we ask for? Often that's what he answers. So for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, this text isn't about like a low numbers on a Wednesday night gathering where it's still worth it because Jesus was there. This is about accountability. This is straight out of that conversation of you need to go after the sheep. If your brother's in sin, he says you have to go and confront them. He says you may need to bring two with you sometimes. Why would we do that, Jesus? He says, because Jesus is with you, which means you have the authority that you need. You have the standing in heaven to go and do heaven's work on earth. So if you agree on earth, he says, do it in heaven in his name for their sake. And no, it's not an appeal to authority. They can refuse. It's not coercive. It's invitational. It's, it's based in nurture, like we talked about last week, not authority. So um, he says, when those wander into sin, he says, you have to go and you have to confront them. But he says, but what about those who sin against us? This is exactly what Peter wants to know. Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? He says, my job is to go to people and confront their sin. How many times do I have to do that when they sin against me? Up to seven times? And I already heard the chuckle about Peter. Poor Peter. He's always kind of the, the butt of the joke. Uh, but can I admit that the first time is really hard for me? Because when I'm sinned against, man, I get defensive and I get resentful and I get bitter very quickly. And then I kind of form a, a cohort of people, Team Smith over here, and we are against you know, team, one who sinned against me. They're in the wrong, right? And I have this chorus of people who say, yeah, yeah, they're in the wrong, they're in the wrong. Um, and it's really hard to forgive when you're rallying the, the crowd. One time for me. And then two times, I can't even imagine, right? Because I barely do it the one time. It's like, you're going to do that to me again? But Peter, being a really good man, <laughs> he says seven times. But you know what Jesus says. Jesus answered, I tell you, no, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. It can also be translated 70 times seven. He uses this language of wholeness and completeness. And he's like, completeness times completeness, which is like infinity and beyond. It's like, oh, that's a lot. Seventy-seven times? He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts do you hear the language of accountability here? 
Accountability is the ability to give an account. But hear this. Accountability between brothers and sisters. This is, I think, really important. This is like, you came, you came for this. You know, this, this is the heart of the sermon. Accountability is giving the gift to a brother or sister of reminding them that Jesus is going to hold them accountable. You see, when it comes down to it, in friendship, you're not accountable to me. Yes, in some sense, you are as friends. In some sense, you are accountable to the community because what you do affects us. But ultimately, accountability is giving the gift of reminding people that you will be held accountable by Jesus. Jesus tells a story of a master who comes back to settle accounts. And this is a story that Jesus talks about a lot. This is a story that Peter and Paul and the writers of the New Testament, they use this language of settling accounts a lot. Let me just give a few for instances. Matthew 12, a few chapters earlier, he says, I tell you that people will have to give an account. You have the ability to give an account for what, Jesus? For every careless word they have ever spoken. That's a lot. Matthew 18, 23, this verse here, he says, it's like a kingdom a king who wants to settle accounts with a servant. Matthew 25, after a long time, the, the master returns to those servants and he settled accounts with them. This is Jesus' primary metaphor for when he comes in judgment day. It's the day of accountability. It's the day of settling up. Romans 14, Paul puts it like this. He says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 13, he says, you, you should obey your earthly leaders and submit to their authority. He's talking about church leaders. He says, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Church leaders, like group leaders, pastors, elders, he says, they have to give an account for you. First Peter 4, he says, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This language is all over the New Testament. And so accountability, what we're offering in DNA is an in-the-moment gift of reminding someone that one day you're going to stand before and you're going to settle up. So how does this master handle this account? He began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Remember this? It used the language of talents, and talents is about 70 pounds. It's a lot. Um, it's the highest number, metric, like, the highest unit of measurement, plus the highest like uh, amount. Uh, one commentator says, it's basically if we were to try to use the word zillions in a conversation. <laughs> I love seeing that in like an academic commentary. He's like, it's basically zillions. Okay, so zillions of dollars was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. This is one of the reminders that this is a parable not an actual teaching about how, who God the Father is. That lesson is going to come at the very end. So he says, at this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. And he said, be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. You notice he didn't postpone the payment. He didn't, like, say, I'll give you more time. He, he canceled it. Why? Because he begged. He begged, be patient with me. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. That's like a couple of months' wages versus zillions of dollars. And he grabbed him and he 
he began to choke him, and he, he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. He resorts to violence, and he resorts to all of his authority. He says his fellow servant fell to his knees, and he begged him, you hear this language, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, it's interesting that the other servants have a role here. They were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servants in. He says, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Look at this lesson. This is how my father, my heavenly father, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is one of those days where I'm like, I'm really just the messenger here. <laughs> but this is the, this is the me- accountability alters eternity. Sin has real consequences for yourself. It can corrode a heart and lead to death. And it can poison a community and lead to a toxic environment. He says it can't be tolerated. We, we have to deal with it. So go to a sinner. He says, and if you find a sinner, he says, the first thing, the most important lesson you can do when you find a sinner is to forgive them. Show them mercy. I love this in a chapter all about accountability. What begins in humility ends in mercy. And this, I think, is how the Father views us. We are afraid of accountability because we have experienced toxic levels of shame, but that is not how our Father treats us. He says, I want you to be the greatest when you lower yourself. And when you lower yourself, it is not a brick wall, and it's not obstinance that you find. You find mercy. You find forgiveness. And if you experience my forgiveness, then you have to be a person of forgiveness. This isn't an isolated teaching. This is all over the New Testament. This is how Jesus taught us to pray every day. Every day, I begin my days, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is the, this is the way of Jesus. I've, maybe I've been watching too much Mandalorian lately. This is the way. So this is a hard teaching. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. Jesus is too. Um, sometimes his teachings, people just leave thinking, can anybody really do that? And so this is where I want to point to, yes, you can. Because what he's saying is that I have mercy on everybody who comes to me. But let me, let me try to make sense of what this could look like here at Oikos. Now, we've talked about DNA groups. DNA is discipleship, nurture, and accountability. And what we're, we're creating a structure for new groups within our Oikos groups for real spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship means Jesus is at the center. That's discipleship. But it also means that nurture is at the heart. And nurture comes before accountability. So it's people who can hear the hard stuff and respond in messages and listening of grace. This is the gift of reminding someone that they're going to be held accountable by Jesus. And it's the gift of voicing the mercy of God out loud for them. Let me talk about how this could look. Um, Here's basically the format. Now, we'll launch these in April. Um, We'll sign up in our groups in April. 
but they're going to follow a rhythm that looks like the transforming graces. That's, they're going to be, let me, let, me, let me share some kind of headers before I share the format. They're optional, which means you don't have to participate. Um, some of you will want to participate, but you just won't have the time to meet. That's understandable. Some of you don't want this right now. Maybe you haven't ever experienced a community of trust and you're a little on guard. We'll be patient. We'll, we'll have many opportunities in the future for you to come along into this. Um, and if that is you, could I just suggest that Oikos has a great resource of providing counseling support. So if this isn't something that you want to process in a group of friends and you need a professional counselor for Christian counseling, Oikos will, will help cover 75% of the, the cost. Basically, it functions as like a, a copay for insurance for Christian counseling. So if your therapist is a counselor, would you talk to me? My email address is in the bulletin. Um, but these are, DNA is gender specific, which means men and women. We talked about some of the reasons why. Um, this is partly for integrity. Um, there are conversations that happen that would be inappropriate for married men to have with married women or, or vice versa for the sake of integrity, but also for the sake of empathy, uh, for the sake of solidarity. We want these groups to be gender specific and they're groups of three to five adults. Adults means kids aren't there. And so we have to figure out schedules for mamas and daddies, how to do that. And three to five means that we're trying to keep it small. Once you get to six, then we'll turn into two groups of three and it'll keep going. And these are within an Oikos group, and they meet about once a month. If you want to meet more, that's great. Um, but really, we need some kind of consistent touch point for trust plus time. Because some of the deepest spiritual formation that happens, happens in the smallest environments of trust and time. So they meet about once a month, and here's kind of how they operate. They operate within an Oikos group. Here's like a group of three or four men or women, and here's a group of three, and there's a couple other people who, who don't have the desire or the capacity to meet. That's, that's totally fine. And if you want to meet with people not in your Oikos group, I, I would say, please do that. We just won't organize that. that you can do that on, on your own time. But here's the format of kind of what this will look like. It's going to look like our rhythm of the transforming graces, which is an acronym that starts with giving thanks. We just start by saying, I'm glad to be with you today because blank. It's pretty simple. And then it moves into a reflection on the word where we read a psalm together. And then as we ask deeper questions, we ask some important life questions. How has God been working in your rhythm of life? It's holding somebody accountable to pursuing Jesus and discipleship. How are your key relationships? How have you been feeling? What have you been feeling most intensely? So it's checking in on the soul, on the relationships, and on the pursuit of God, up, in, and out. And then we move into commune with God. And here's where we confess and pray together. We say something like this. Is there anything you need to confess before we pray? And then you pray for one another. You see, this isn't like an attack. It's an invitation to disclosure. To let some of that, the darkness that's in our hearts be shared out in the open. And then after we confess and pray together, you say this. I want to speak some truths of scripture to you today. You are blank. You were forgiven. You were loved. You were delighted in by your heavenly father. 
You can share passages, you can share truths of scripture in response. You see how this accountability is soaked in nurture. What David Brooks called love-drenched accountability. We eat together, so this is all happening over the context of a shared meal or a coffee or something like that. And then we serve our neighbor. And this doesn't mean then you go begin a service project. What this means is that you pray specifically and missionally for people in your life. How is the Lord prompting you to carry out his mission? How did you respond to his burdens since last time we met? It's just another invitation to accountability to follow up on the movement and the work of God in your prayers. It's pretty simple. We'll make bookmarks. This will be really easy to follow. But these simple structures can add, I think, spiritual depth and true accountability into some of our our most special relationships that we already have in our groups. So what could happen here? This is the phrase I've been using, that accountability alters eternity. But here, mostly I I just want to point back to Jesus. Jesus, in the the gospel message is this, and we just took the bread and the cup, and we, we ask the little ones with us, you know, why do we take the bread? And we take the bread to remember his body that was given for us. Why do you have to give his body? He died so that we could live. We, we drink the cup and we say, what does the cup represent? It represents his blood that was poured out for us at the cross. Why did his blood need to be poured out? So that our sins could be washed away. But in the context of discipleship, nurture, and account, do you remember this line from Jesus? He says, he says, he took on our illnesses and he bore our diseases. You see, the logic of accounting doesn't apply to the gospel. Because what Jesus is saying, when it comes to accountability, he says, put it on my account. Everything on the ledger of loss, he says, put it on my account. Everything on the ledger of gain, he says, forfeit it and put it on my account. And his accountability for us, means that when we come to him with our sin, he says, put it on my account, you're covered. You don't have to pay for it. And so, yes, our, our gifts of accountability, of reminding one another that we will be held accountable to him, part of what we're doing is reminding one another that he already has shown himself accountable for us. He died for us. His body was nailed for us. His blood was shed for us. And he became sin so that we could become his righteousness. This this is why we have the freedom to be accountable. And in him, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. So what would it look like to give healthy correction in the context of gospel-saturated, no-condemnation, loving spiritual friendship. It could have eternal consequences. It could save your soul. It could save somebody in your group. And can I just share that? I have seen this so many times, and I just can't share the names, (laughs) of people who are wanting to go down a path, and then in the context of love, somebody speaks of truth. And they say, that is not who we are. This is who we are. And I'm going to help you get there. And I have seen it in a moment go from a pathway of death 
into a pathway of life over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, this isn't just a pastor's job. This isn't just a church leadership's job. He says, I want you to show accountability, to go for your brother and your sister like a shepherd would chase down a sheep. So I invite you to DNA groups. We'll start these next month. DNA, Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. This is our last teaching on DNA. And then we'll organize these right after Easter. But kind of as a close to the series, I just want to ask the Lord to bless them. Would you stand? And I'm going to ask the Lord to bless our, our future DNA groups. The Lord God, in our meager, humble attempts to serve you well and to be deeply transformed by your grace, we're offering open-handedly our DNA groups. And we're asking that, that these efforts, Lord, we believe that you have led us into them. And Lord, we are asking that you would make them fruitful. Could we experience your nearness in them? Could we hear messages of your grace? Could we hear language of who we truly are and our real identity? Could we look one another in the face and hear you too? To be known by one another as a way of experiencing how you see us. So Lord, would you work among us, move in us, and would you work through us for discipleship, nurture, and accountability? for our transformation and for our wholeness and holiness for your kingdom and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, go get your kids. God bless you guys.